You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to today's special podcast follow-up with Steve Frost and Raphael Adina of Frost Included. I'm Ben Root, Program Coordinator here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. Steve and Raffi recently did a phenomenal two-part webinar series for us on diversity, equity, and inclusion during the COVID pandemic. The two webinars were extremely well attended and had literally thousands of people um, attend between the two sessions combined. I uh, also had a lot of great conversations and questions and, um, and that we weren't able to answer. So, uh, thankfully, Steve and Rafi have been gracious enough to agree to come back and do this follow-up interview with us so that we could answer some of those questions and get to some of those comments. Um, so I, without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce Steve, uh, Stephen and Rafi. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for being here, or well, you know, doing this for us. <laughs> we're that. We're that. Yeah, exactly. We're all here together um, yeah. in this new virtual world. Uh, so before we jump in with the questions, I was thinking it'd be great if you guys just did a little just recap of the content that we went over, just for anyone who is listening to this who, for some reason, didn't um, watch either of the two webinars, which if you haven't, I would recommend you do that. They are both available on our website, formworkplaceinclusion.com forward slash webinars. But yeah, if you just want to just do a, well, one of brief little intros of yourselves and then just a little brief cap, recap of what we talked or what you talked about. Uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Rafi Aladina, as Ben said, and I'm a consultant with Frost Included. We are a diversity and inclusion consultancy based in London, UK, but I personally am based in Philadelphia here in the US, um, and we operate all over the world uh, on pretty much every continent except Antarctica at the moment. So, um, and I guess kind of my background was really in academia before this. I was a research fellow uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, specifically focusing on implicit gender and racial biases in negotiations. And then I moved more into the application side. Uh, and that's when I started with this uh, consultancy, Frost Included. And um, I've really focused a lot of my work around statistics and behavioral economics around diversity and inclusion. So how do we actually measure inclusion and how do we make subtle little changes that can have outsized effects on the inclusion of our workforce? So my first webinar uh, was on April 30th with the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. And really it focused on being inclusive during the coronavirus and how we can actually do that. And I think the first topic that I really focused on was uh, why does this matter right now in particular? And we talked about the idea that 
during a pandemic and particularly as people are transitioning into working from home and now going back into the workforce, things are changing and things might be different than what you're used to. And organizations are really having to adapt. And in order to adapt effectively, managers and leaders need to inspire creativity and innovation. They need to connect with employees on a personal level so that it can help people work more efficiently and productively, particularly when things are changing. And also more than anything else, they need to help maintain the health and safety of their colleagues. And this is what people are telling us that they're really caring about. And inclusion, while it's really easy not to be inclusive right now, because there's so much on our plates and it's easy to just be running a mile a minute and not thinking about diversity and inclusion, it can still really be a method toward doing all of those things I mentioned that are critical for organizations to adapt effectively. And so we talked about some of those uh, statistics and the effects of how diversity and inclusion can inspire more creativity and innovation and how they can help us connect to people on a personal level and promote health and safety and efficient and productive work. And we talked about some of the different nudges that people can employ in that way. So it might be around encouraging schedules to reduce stress and anxiety, modeling that you're not going to work outside of work hours, even if you're working from home, because that can be really difficult for people to maintain that balance. We talked about encouraging even more flexible working, so not just for appointments or um, you know taking your child to school, but also even for things to just maintain your mental health, like naps or taking a walk um, and things like that. And then we also talked about checking in on the people who are particularly taxed right now. So people who have caring responsibilities, uh, people who might have mental health issues or physical disabilities, and really just about showing vulnerability and willing to be uh, individually inclusive of those individual people rather than trying to include people as broad swaths. Uh, so that's kind of a brief summary about what that webinar was on. Great, thank you for that. And Steve, how about yours? Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Rafi, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, for those of us who joined back on May 7th, I talked about inclusive leadership in a virtual world and um, how fast things move. But what the uh, was, I, I got a lot out of that webinar myself, I hope you did too, was I asked you a question at the beginning, um, how are you feeling in your body and mind right now? And we scored ourselves on a five point scale and it was like a bell curve. You know, so most people kind of in the middle. By the end of the webinar with the Q&A and the discussion we all had, we shifted that bell curve to the right a bit, which was really great. But actually, we can help each other this time. Um, we talked about the challenges of right now. We reminded ourselves what inclusive leadership is and what it's not, what's going on in the world, how we make sense of that. And then if possible, despite the tragedy, we can have the positivity of the fact that we are living in a time of forced innovation. And so we kind of jumped off from that and thought, well, okay, if we've got to innovate, what does that innovation look like? And we talked about the challenges and the opportunities of diversity and inclusion right now. We looked at the example of London 2012 Olympics and Paralympics. And then we launched into five things that all of us as leaders can do right now. We talked about empathy. We talked about decision-making. We talked about participation. And we talked about focus. Um, but fundamentally right now, we need to kind of stay focused, not only on diversity and inclusion to help the decisions that we make ourselves, our team, our family, our loved ones, but also really just to kind of um, 
do all we can do at this time to be focused on our work purposefully, but to also be focused on our loved ones. And hopefully the outcome is more than the sum of the parts. So we, we did that and hopefully people took away some practical actions they can do. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I work with Rafi. I'm the CEO of FI. We're a diversity and inclusion consulting company, as Rafi said, that works everywhere across the world. Maybe I'll start leading on Antarctica, Rafi. I don't know. And you can <laughs> live in the rest of the world. But um, either way, we, we work with some amazing people, some amazing organizations all over the world. It's a true joy and a privilege. And I write a bit, teach a bit, and try and help people with their most pressing challenges and help them make decisions inclusively. Um, that's, that's me. Great. Thank you. Rafi, are you going to open the Antarctica office? Are you going to leave that? Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> discrimination penguins or something. <laughs> I'm sure there is some. <laughs> yeah. <The> untapped market. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you both so much for, and um, uh, again, for being here. And, and one of the things that was brought up a lot or, or talked about is unconscious bias or one of the questions was what kind of unconscious bias is more likely to creep up during uh, difficult times like this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think there are a lot. I think it's uh, it's a difficult thing to necessarily quantify just because there are like literally hundreds of biases that have been researched and given names at this point. But I think a few that I'm personally noticing are, one is affinity bias, which is the idea of feeling biased in favor of people who are either similar to you or similar to those in your in-group, so your closest friends and colleagues and partners. Um, and I think the way in which those things are coming out are, so for example, if most of your colleagues and friends don't have children and you don't have children, then it can be difficult to empathize with the particular issues that people with children are facing right now or with those caring responsibilities. Uh, and that's similarly, similarly true for people who might have disabilities. If you and your in-group are filled with people who don't have disabilities, it can be really hard to empathize with the people who do have disabilities and the particular issues that they're facing right now. And I feel like those are getting amplified a little bit just because we're in a moment of crisis. And that's, you know, those, it's in those moments that we are stressed and tired and uh, dealing with a lot. And so it means that we have more on our minds. We have higher cognitive load, which is the term that psychologists use to talk about the things that are weighing on our working memory. And when they do weigh on us and we have a lot of those things weighing on us, then it can be harder to shift from our instinctual gut instincts to our more reasoned, logical, rational instincts. And it's in that second area of reasonable, logical thinking that empathy lies. It's really hard to be empathetic when you're relying on your instinct, your basic instincts. And so that's also where biases lie in that other side. So having that, struggling to find that balance can be really tough right now. And that's what's allowing things like affinity bias to play out a little bit more. The second bias that I would mention that I'm really seeing a lot of is the warmth competency effect. So this is the idea that members of minority groups or marginalized groups, particularly we're seeing this for women and even more so for black women here in the US at least, is that women are often seen as either warm and likable and caring or confident and really good at their jobs. 
but rarely both. So this is, goes back to the type of research that I used to do that I mentioned earlier, in that we often see that when a woman is like doing a negotiation and standing her ground and saying, this is, this is what I need to do. This is the type of job that I need to work. These are the hours. This is the money, that kind of thing. When we see men doing, exhibiting those kinds of behaviors, we see them as strong, knowing their worth, maybe uh, really standing up for being able to take care of their families and standing up for themselves. But with women, we see them as maybe really good negotiator, but also cold, abrasive, maybe even. And these are words that come out a lot in the research. And so um, while they might say that this person is really competent, if they're a woman exhibiting those behaviors, we also say we'd rather not work with them or rather not have them in our team. But you know, you need them in the company. But if no one wants them on their team, then they don't fit with the company. So seeing that warm competency effect is really getting amplified in particular because as people are working from home or changing how they're working a little bit more flexibly, it means that uh, what we're seeing is that women in particular are taking on even more of the household labor. So they're doing even more of the taking care of children or keeping the house clean or homeschooling their kids um, and things like that. Whereas men are not necessarily taking up as much of a proportion of that as they might, even though they're at home. So, um, and seeing that kind of play out means that women are having even less time or even harder times balancing that with working full time. And then we're seeing that warmth competency effect um, playing up even more. Thank you. Uh, Steve, did you want to add anything? I, I think, look, there's so many questions here. <laughs> I, I, could add, I could add loads. I mean, there's, as Rafi said, there's hundreds of biases that are creeping up during this time. I think rather than me add more to the affinity bias and confirmation bias and Rafi's mentioned, I think I'd just say, look, being self-aware is even more critical now than ever. And one of the main ways you can do that is just by reaching out to people who you know might disagree with you and who you know have different perspectives. But doing that consciously and preemptively, uh, not simply because it's a good thing to do, but also because it's going to help you in the decisions that you take. Uh, I feel like you just answered my next question, but what is your recommendation in approaching a conversation with someone who denies their biases impacting how they treat people who have different values to theirs? Uh, the goal is to reach a genuine impact and empathetic understanding among other and not to convince the other person to change their mind, but to understand the lot the lives experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what Steve just said. It's about really being self-aware of, you know, how your actions and words are being perceived. But also, you know, for those people who aren't aware, if you are the person who is being affected by those words and actions, how do you confront them? I think that's it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult task. And I want to acknowledge that. It's a task that I find difficult. Sometimes I have to do that with my family in particular, and that's really difficult. But um, I think it's really starting with assuring them that you're giving them the benefit of the doubt. So I know you have the best of intentions. I know that you care about this stuff. I know that. However, this is how it's being received. And, you know, you can't control how it's being received as frustrated as you might be by the fact that it's being received in a way that you're not intending. You can't control that. But what you can control is how you deliver your message. So I'm telling you that 
it's being received in this way, even if you don't intend it. But if you adjust your message in this particular way, then maybe it will be better received or received in the way that you're intending it to. And I think that kind of assuring them that they're being, that they are being heard, at least by you, but, you know, to maybe improve the effect of their message, they can do things a different way. Thank you. Thanks. Now, as a um, as a person of color, this is something that's uh, this is something that I've experienced, or at least felt uh, quite often, as, which is tokenism. Um, someone asked, "Can you touch on how to avoid tokenism in the virtual world when many struggled with how to avoid it in the pre-COVID world?" Yeah. So, shall I jump in as the white guy here? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So, to my two colleagues of color, I'm. I'm I'm going to, um, by the way, for anyone listening, we kind of agreed I'd take this question in case I'm being too, you know, white explaining right now. But, um, so how can we avoid tokenism? Well, look, um, I'll give my view and then I'll, I'll defer to other folks. Um, I spent a lot of time researching this. And I think what we can see in a lot of diversity inclusion work is three paradigms. There's kind of like a, a 101, which is really compliance-based, that we, we do inclusion work because it's the law. Right? It's race legislation or it's gender pay gap legislation in the UK or what have you. Fine, great, laws are good. There's a second approach which is quite marketing led. So you do it because it makes you look good, right? So right now on Twitter, I'm impressed by Adidas retweeting Nike on anti-racism stuff, right? That's that's pretty cool, right? However, both of those are insufficient because actually the real work's in the third paradigm, the third area, which is actually how we do this stuff genuinely embedding it in the decisions that we're making as a company or as a leader. And so whilst I applaud Adidas and Nike for doing some phenomenal marketing on anti-racism, awesome, the fact remains that both of them have executive boards which are 100% white. So if you really want to kind of get fundamental about this and profound and avoid tokenism or even the accusation of tokenism, you've got to put it into this third paradigm of how you actually embed it in the decisions that you make. So let me give you an example of that. The Bank of England, right? Central Bank of the United Kingdom. It could be the Federal Reserve, it could be Banque de France. They also care about diversity inclusion like Nike, like Adidas. But it's gone further in one sense in that rather than just representation of output, it's actually informing the process of the organization itself. So a central bank is responsible for mitigating risk in the economy, for making lots of very important decisions. And the Bank of England did something called author in the room, which means that anybody at any level of any color who's the expert on the decision at hand is in the room with the senior decision makers and the senior decision makers have to behave in such a way that everyone feels able to take part and participate safely so that the decisions that are made are the most informed, expert, enlightened decisions possible. That for me is the opposite of tokenism, where you're using skill sets from diverse people to inform critical decision making. Right? where it informs the design of a car or the economic output of a central bank or the algorithm of a tech company. Right, That's beyond tokenism. But doing stuff because you kind of have to, because it's the law or because it makes you look good in marketing alone, risks being quite tokenistic. And 
to the question about, well, how do we avoid it in the pre-COVID world? How do we avoid it now? It kind of builds off what Rafi was saying, right? That fundamentally, it starts with self-awareness. And if I'm just going to, you know, have a black issue and say, oh, let me call Ben, he's black, what does he think about it? Or I've got a, you know, uh, an Asian-Canadian issue and I call Rafi, what does he think about it? Well, great talk, different people, but it's because Ben and Rafi are experts on these things or their lived experiences are going to inform these things that helps me with my decision-making, my blind spots, and my ability to make better decisions than if I didn't consult. So, long answer, Ben. I don't know whether you wanted that, and, and <laughs> I'll defer to you both, but it, for me, it really starts this third bucket, right? What is the purpose of the organization, the purpose of the work, the purpose of the team? What are the skills we need? How do we use the rich skills and life experiences of the diverse people around us to make those decisions better, you know, more genuine, more credible, more accurate? And I, w- I will say, Steve, that just because you're a white man doesn't mean like you are immune from tokenism i like i you're also a gay man and that i is there's also tokenism in like oh let's get the gay guy to come and give mm-hmm. us fashion advice or come and give us you know exactly but like yeah like it happens all the time to that uh, so don't discredit yourself <laughs> That's very i also think like one of the things we often don't talk about is is like the social context factor of what who is diverse in that particular group so like for example in our company our company is only six people but like steve is the only white guy and so if we want the white person views on things (laughs) steve is the only one there to give us that that view that viewpoint from a lived experience example so i mean i do think that social context does really matter Yeah, I remember, well, we had our office manager, Aaron, and for a while, he was the token white guy in our in our <laughs> diverse and inclusive office. Um, well, I'm going to move to on to the um, psychological safety, which is something you mentioned, Rafi, and you also mentioned Stephen, but is psychological safety a tool to create more inclusion or a, pro- or a product of an inclusive culture? So I reckon it's both, right? Um, Psychological safety, as I mentioned, the Bank of England example, and, and Rafi's touched on, is the ability to speak up without fear of retribution, right? Which makes for better mental health, more happy workplaces, but also more accurate decisions because they're informed, right? So it's a product of inclusion because if, for example, Ben, you know, you share this podcast inclusively and beautifully as you are doing, you get the best out of both of us. But if you don't, then you don't. So it's, it's a product of inclusion, inclusive leadership. But it's also a contributing factor. So like in the Bank of England, you know, because there are now higher levels of psychological safety, you get more inputs to calibrate the decisions that are made, which are pretty important decisions. So I think it's both. And I think just to kind of add to that, the difficulty with the fact that it is both is it is that people can start to see it as a chicken and egg problem as to like, if it's a product and it's the cause, then where do we start? And um, I think that this is where we really have to focus on who has power. And if it's the people in formal authority, the people who are you know, the CEO of the organization or the leadership group or the board or whatever it is, they're the people with power, then people are going to mimic those behaviors. So it's on them to start trying to create that psychological safety so that it can engender further psychological safety and it can snowball after that. So I think like while it can be a bit of a chicken and egg question, for me, it always starts with 
who has power. And once you've identified that group, it's on them to start creating that psychological safety. You know, that was, I was never, please continue, Steve. No, no, and everyone can coach people, right? So, you know, but actually, like, as well as starting that process and it being a, a virtuous circle rather than a vicious circle, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, Brad, go. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say, there was a um, very another similar question that I was going to throw in about um, how to be vulnerable and authentic and sharing your anxiety levels, but you just actually just answered that. So thank you. Um, great minds. Um, so let's, I'm uh, going to move on to disability because we had quite a few questions about with disability with the, the, the Olympics. Um, and do you have any insights on t- or tips for increasing disability access as part of DEI work, especially in this time of virtual participation? Sure. I mean, Matthew, should I do a quick one and then hand over to yeah, you? Sure. Um, oh yeah, I forgot the order. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. Like I'm, I'm all about, you know, going with the flow on this. So um, do we have any tips on this? Yeah, yes, I guess. Um, look, I mean, the mantra actually, which is quite a pertinent to race right now, given what's going on, but certainly it's been part of the disability movement for a long time, is nothing about us without us, right? So if I think about the work we did at London 2012, and the Paralympic Games, as well as the Olympic Games, it was actually around saying, well, look, how can we possibly put on the world's second biggest event and world's biggest disability event without disabled people front and center? So we had a visually impaired director. We had, you know, my team had folks with a range of abilities and disabilities. And it felt really, really not only authentic and credible, nothing about us without us, but also a constant learning environment, right? I mean, I I felt I had some grounding already because my sister's disabled, but you know, you can never learn enough. And, and when you just work with people with disabilities every day, it's part of your life, you just constantly learn, right? And if I think about a webinar I did last week with my friends, Mark and Brooke, you know, Brooke is quadriplegic. She's the first quadriplegic woman to graduate from Harvard. Mark is uh, visually impaired and a wheelchair user. They make the point super eloquently that, you know, this is not about being brave. This is not about, this is about being organized. It's about being creative. It's about being innovative by necessity. And they're exactly the kind of skills that organizations need right now, right? So, so in terms of insights and tips for doing this, I think it's in the same way, you know, Rafi put forward the argument earlier on about, you know, bias and why we need inclusion diversity right now. The same applies for, you know, folks with disabilities disability access, right? So if I think about someone for disability, there's Brooke and Mark, Deb Dadgett, um, a few others, you know, it, it's, it's lived experience, it's expertise built up over the years, it's that credibility and authenticity which can help us all. And I think practically that starts with looking at the people's journey and saying, well, how can we make every bit of it accessible? So one thing we did in the UK at the Olympics and Paralympics was do a guaranteed interview for candidates with disability, which meant that people who are qualified for the role, you know, they met the job description criteria. If they identified themselves as having disability, they were guaranteed interview. And that was one thing we did to kind of kickstart the supply of brilliant disabled talent. And then when you kind of then go further on the people journey and you get to, well, how do we do the interviews? Got to be accessible in environments, right? In some cases, we went to them rather than expect them to come to us, you know, adaptation. 
And then when you think about the culture itself, how can you create a flexible work environment that allows people to perform their best? So you retain um, brilliant talent. So it's these kind of things that I think are super important. And in terms of being right now, you know, virtual, um, this environment offers us a choice. It offers a choice to, you know, ignore uh, inconvenient disabilities that we don't want to learn about. And, you know, you're remote from people, so it's easy to exclude. Or it offers us an opportunity to include as never before, because we're all learning tech. We're all learning to interact and, you know, engage in new ways. And if we can do that inclusively, it actually offers us a potentially great legacy from this crisis, like we try to have a legacy from the Olympics and Paralympics to have better inclusion of disabled people in a post-COVID world. I think a the things that I would add to that are kind of, you know, right now in this particular, um, particular environment of the pandemic, uh, one of the things that we're seeing come up a lot is about mental health as well. So there are physical disabilities, but there are also hidden mental disabilities. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing stats that, I, stats that I alluded to in the webinar of like, you know, for example, here in the US, 50% of the population is saying that their mental health is being negatively affected by the pandemic. That's not 50% of people with mental illness, it's 50% of the population. And when it goes to mental illness in particular, uh, there were some recent surveys that showed that 80% of people who already had a mental illness are saying that their symptoms are worsening right now because of the pandemic. And there are lots of reasons for that. The added stress and anxiety that comes from this kind of lockdown situation, but also from the fact that um, they're having to adapt their work lives, that can really amplify those, those disabilities that are often hidden. And so I think that these are particular things we have to be thinking about that are happening right now and how we can be most helpful to those groups of people in terms of that might be things like uh, the scheduling example that I mentioned earlier that can help reduce anxiety and stress when we have those more structured schedules to our lives. But also it could be things like the flexible working example that Steve brought up and being even more flexible with the way that we work. And I'll give you an example about that that we've actually done with one of our clients was um, we ran this thing called an inclusion diagnostic, which is basically a quantitative tool to measure how inclusive an organization is for different groups. And when we did it with this organization, we found that disabled people in particular felt that if they used the flexible working arrangement policy, then it could negatively affect their progression in the firm. So while there was a flexible work arrangement that they could make use of, they felt that they actually couldn't in reality because, you know, maybe they wouldn't be put on that team that they wanted. They might not get that promotion because they'll be seen as being too high maintenance or needing extra accommodations that people just don't want to have to deal with. And so what we did was we, uh, with, with the client decided to switch their policy from instead of saying you, you can request flexible work whenever you want, saying that flexible work is now the default. So it's just assumed that you can work whenever you want. And because you're an adult and a good worker, you're going to get your work done. And now managers have to provide justification for why they might not allow someone to work flexibly why they need someone to work specific hours or from a specific location or whatever it is. 
And so if you put the onus on those managers to having to justify those things, what we found as a result is that not only were disabled employees feeling more included in that in the ability to make use of flexible working because they felt like maybe they needed it more or something like that. Not only were they able to use that and feel more included, it also meant that so many more groups of people felt more included as well. So that, and particularly we found that with people who had caring responsibilities, whether that was for a child or a, an ailing uh, parent or family member or something like that, because work flexibility was now the default, they didn't have to request work flexibility arrangements either. And so everybody was feeling a little bit more included as a result. So some of these policies that you might institute to be more inclusive of disabled people can actually affect everyone positively. It can have those kinds of outsized effects that we're really looking for. Thank you so much, both. <clears throat> um, I'm a little choked up. <laughs> um, thank you. And uh, the next question is, uh, can you talk about the role of allies leveraging their uh, situational power and privilege to speak up for people feeling on the outside and or feeling too vulnerable to speak up about how they're struggling? Sure. Um, I guess this kind of builds up our earlier conversation then, right, about, you know, race, identity, partnering, and so forth. Um, I consider myself, you know, as LGBT plus, like I'm part of the LGBT plus community. But in terms of, for example, race, I'm a white guy, I like to think I was an ally, right? And, and I think it's about how we can flex our roles and ourselves to, to, to help ourselves and others, right? So this idea of people, let, let, let's break it down. Because um, I remember when this question came up in the, in the webinar we did then back in May, and I wanted to go really deep on this. Um, if we break it down and talk about, you know, what is an ally, right? So an ally being somebody who doesn't necessarily share the identity of the said person, but can definitely partner with them to advance the cause and to kind of support and, and help. But there's a fine line between allyship and taking over. You know, or exp you know. So, you know, one thing I did in a recent article in Forbes was actually when it comes to race, uh, you know, my advice as a white person to the white people, you know, pass the mic. Like, you know, at the end of the day, I can empathize all I, I possibly can, but I will never truly know what it's like to live as a black person because I'm not black. So, you know, all I can do is ally. And, and for me, the fine line is I ally with a person of color, but it's got to be them leading, right? Because it's, it's their lived experience, it's them that's feeling the discrimination, so forth. And certainly one thing I've learned is, is like it is a minority stress, you know, empathizing, but ultimately supporting their leadership and what, what they want to get out of it. So, so practically, um, if I think about like a, a meeting example, let's say we're all in a meeting together and there's a few other people here and diverse meeting. And we can, you know, because the three of us have super high emotional intelligence and we're all really great and inclusive and stuff. Um, let's assume we kind of pick up on the fact that some people are being left out of the conversation um, or having their ideas attributed to other people or don't feel able to speak up. I mean, one great example was in a, in a bank in a financial institution I was working with, there was a brilliant woman who every time in the meeting looked to the male chair before she answered the question. You know, that comes, if we kind of detect examples of struggling or lack of inclusion, we can partner with those people. Now, I guess common sense, you generally kind of praise in public, critique in private, 
but there's ways that you can, you know, partner in advance the meeting to keep an issue alive. You know, so oh, actually, like, you know, what did what did Jocelyn say there? Or oh, okay, what what was Amy's idea again? Or whatever it might be, and partner to keep a really important issue alive. Give credit where credit's due, and make sure that it informs the decision to the benefit of all of us. So I'd be kind of using my situational power, my privilege, and speaking up, but hopefully not taking over. Hopefully, you know, supporting rather than explaining. Hopefully, partnering, you know, to, to do that. Um, and I think it just starts with self-awareness, right? If, if you have the privilege of being in a majority group in a situation, acknowledge that, be aware of that, ask, learn, educate, and then act in terms of be led by the other person, right? Like, how do they want to partner? Do they want to bring it up right now? Is now not the right time? You know, be led by them. Um, again, nothing about us without us, you know. Again, you know, pass the mic, you know, give give, give space and the limelight to other people who, who might benefit from that. But, but I think, well, I guess kind of that's, that's how I how I think about it, how I learn. It's an ongoing learning journey, but I think if we all, you know, started from a position of, look, if you're a majority group, listen. And if you're a minority group, ask, you know, help. So maybe we could kind of keep some of these issues alive and, and, and sort a few of them. I don't know what you two think. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think another benefit of the kind of partnering technique that you shared, Steve, is, um, you know, it can be, it can be hard to be an ally sometimes because, you know, the point, the part, the point of being an ally is that you don't know what you, that like, you know, you have these blind spots and it can be hard to recognize those blind spots, especially in the moment. And so I can empathize with that, even if it's work that we want to keep doing. And this is particularly difficult if you are kind of new to the experience of trying to practically be an ally. Um, but what's useful about the partnering technique is that you're not trying to be an ally necessarily actively in that sense of literally every marginalized person in the room with every aspect of their marginalization. So if you, you and I, Steve, are allies or our partners in this situation, then, and we're going into a meeting together, my job is to be your ally not the ally of all gay people necessarily or something like that. And your job is to be the al is to be my ally and my partner. So anytime that I exp that you see something happening to me, which is something that's much more easy to pick out. So you see someone making a particularly racist comment, then you know that that's a trigger for me because I'm a person of color and that affects me. And so you're able to say like, hey, maybe don't do that. So it's just easier to recognize those moments when you're focusing on an individual rather than on a large swath of people, which can get overwhelming, I think, for some allies, particularly those who are new to that experience. Just, just, just bouncing off that roughly, actually. I mean, that's really nicely put. And kind of a couple of thoughts it sparks was, one, I guess, the difference between if you know the person or if you don't, right? Mm. Like, so like you and I have worked together for years, so it's kind of like, it's pretty, but if you don't, I suppose, I certainly would be a little more cautious, perhaps, and take more of a lead from that person. Yeah. I don't know if there's something about whether you know them or not, or it's new or not, or that kind of thing. But which I guess goes to psychological safety as well. Mm -hmm. But then another thing, perhaps, would be just, I guess, empathy in terms of appreciating that, for me, a general rule I've tried to live by is that the, the burden should be on the person with most power and privilege. 
So if, if it's in a meeting and you're the only Asian guy and it's all white guys, then I guess it's, I've got a bit more responsibility there to make sure that I'm taking some of that heat. If, you know, I'm the only gay guy in the room and, you know, everyone starts straight folks and maybe you've got a bit more response to take some of the heat, you know? That kind of thing has been a kind of a, just a kind of a, a rule of thumb I've worked to. Yeah, I mean, I, I the only thing I could add is something that I th- think of uh, from something uh, Caroline Wonga um, then, uh, or uh, from Targets once said during a Let's Talk About Race discussion um, held by OIMC is like everybody has privilege and everybody can be an ally like I don't think you know, like like you just said you know being you know so you Steve being an ally for Rafi if he's the only Asian and he, him being an ally for you as if you're the only gay person we all have some kind of way that we can be an ally and it's just being recognizing that and um yeah just yeah. Have, yeah, exactly. And and to your point, Rafi, it can be difficult for someone who's in a marginalized group, like in a marginalized group to think of themselves as having any kind of privilege that would be able to help someone else or to be an ally for them. But like just keeping in mind that everyone has that potential to be an ally. But uh, Rafi, in your, in your answer to your previous question or one of the previous questions, you mentioned um, putting the onus on managers um, in and in the so do you have any suggestions on getting managers and particularly um, white male managers or straight white male managers um, and leaders to see the importance of inclusion during this pandemic? And this can be in the corporate world and, and government. Um, it's kind of a melding of a couple, couple different people ask this question. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there's obviously the kind of ethical component to this and seeing, you know, like we just want people to be treated equitably and meritocratically. And I think most managers and leaders agree with that, but it's often unconvincing. Like it doesn't actually get them to do anything about it, even if they believe it. And so the question is, I think a little bit more about seeing the importance in a way that actually makes them active to do something. Um, For us, I think um, there there are a couple of things that I've seen work. Um, One is showing stats because data gets people to care. Um, but the second is pairing that with stories because stories make people actually do something about it. So um, it's really using the combination of the full like quantitative data evidence along with the qualitative anecdotes that really bring those numbers to life. So you know you might say some you might be able to share the stat that you know going from an office that is all single sex, to an office that is equally split between men and women has a, is affiliated with a 41% revenue increase. Or the stat that companies in the top quartile of gender diversity have financial returns 15% above the industry median. And for ethnic diversity, that's 30%. Or we can talk about the increase in innovation um, and improved performance on brainstorming and creativity tasks that comes from teams that have a more equitable distribution of conversational turn-taking that comes from more diverse groups. And we can talk about the fact that um, on particularly complex strategy tasks, increasing the diversity of the team solving that problem is actually five times more effective than increasing the average IQ of that team. And so we can talk about all those statistics that exist. And I can talk about, you know, these are coming from actual statistical research. Um, I'm particularly drawing on the research of Anita Williams-Woolley 
at uh, Carnegie Mellon University and the research from um, that McKinsey has done on financial returns for diverse companies. Uh, that report came out in 2015. And there are a number of other kind of places that I'm drawing on, but you can refer to those statistics and it gets people really interested because they're like, oh my God, of course I want that revenue increase. Of course I want people to be better at their problem solving tasks. And then you say, okay, now here's a story that actually talks about where that's worked and where that hasn't. So um, I might talk about, you know, my own experiences as, you know, an Asian person right now in the middle of, you know, protests that are going on in Philadelphia. And the fact that I can't take out my trash after curfew without feeling afraid. And what does that say about whether or not I can contribute to this society or um, the things that might be weighing on my mind because, uh, because I'm feeling that fear a little bit and how that might affect my workplace. And if I can't talk about that with my employer, thankfully I can, but if I can't, then how are they gonna know what's, what's weighing on my mind and why I might be a little less productive today or some, something like that. So I think really pairing those stats about why this inclusion matters with, with stories of what's actually happening to people can really adapt how people see things from this stuff matters, yeah, I care about it, to holy crap, this is really affecting my work, to wow, this is really affecting my people individually and get them to do something. Thank you so much for that, Rafi. Steve, did you have anything you wanted to add to that as his employer? <laughs> <laughs> we have fantastic psychological safety and everyone should come work with us. Um, uh, what, what I, to, I mean, look, it's pretty self-explanatory from what Rafi just said, right? But I look, I guess one thing I, I might add is, you know, it's my day job, right, to engage senior execs, disproportionately white men. And there's a ton of stuff which engages them and Rafi's kind of eloquently describes some of that stuff. For me, I suppose one tool, I mean, there's many, right, that we use, but one tool that definitely stands out is in an appropriate way, you know, so you, you gauge as a professional the level of heat you want to generate on this. In an appropriate way, you lay down the cognitive dissonance, the gap between what people say and what they do. So I gave an example earlier in this webinar podcast about Adidas and Nike saying great stuff, but the management teams are all white. So if I'm talking to an executive at Adidas and Nike, I say, look, this is great what you're doing. This is awesome. This is fantastic. Tell me about your closest friends. Tell me about your closest colleagues. Tell me about, and how do you square that circle, right? And if people can own their own contradictions, can own their own cognitive dissonance, and can see that working on that is in their own self-interest, then you've got a very different framing for the conversation, right? Suddenly, you know, Rafi and Stephen Ben are no longer diversity consultants pushing an agenda. We are leadership consultants helping leaders lead. And you're helping people realize that narrowing that cognitive dissonance, narrowing the gap between what I say and what I do, makes me a better leader, is in my own enlightened self-interest, helps me with the decisions that I make, right? And that's one way that we've worked with people all over the world to try and help them do what we do. And to reframe this whole conversation from one of lobbying or campaigning to one of actually 
helping people, having empathy for people, helping them help themselves and help others and the world around us. So that's one thing I'd add. Thank you so much, Steve. And for us, uh, for our fellow American listeners, he's saying Adidas. The, that's the brand that he's the oh. shoe brand. Adidas. <laughs> for those of us who, <laughs> just to be clear, um, for I for us Americans listening. But um, well, thank you. I unfortunately we are you know we're running out of time but i just want to thank you both thank you so much rafi and Steve, for taking the time to continue this great conversation and um share your great insights um thank again i can't thank you enough and thank you to all our listeners for joining us today if you would like to learn more and continue the conversation um please feel free to reach out to either steve or Rafi um, at uh, Rafi at Rafi at frostincluded.com, which is R A A F I, or Stephen at frostincluded.com, and that's S T A S T E P H E N. Um, again, uh, thank you both for being here again, and thank you for the original uh, webinars that you did for us and for your continued work in the in DEI. Thank you so much. Let just let me just say, Ben, thank you yes. to you everyone at the forum for hosting this because you know we've been on a journey together over the last few years and right now of course it's quite challenging and honestly thank you to you for this critical role you're playing in hosting this and keeping people together and convening people at an incredibly important time and thank you to everyone who's taking the time out of their busy lives to listen to this because I appreciate it can be tough and I appreciate that right now people are finding it really hard and I want you to know that there is community, there is stuff we're doing and this work has never been more important. So thank you for what you're doing and we're committed to partnering with you to keep it thriving in the future. Thank you. Um, well, <laughs> and on that note, new episodes of our the Forum podcast are available um, along with this one at forumworkplaceinclusion.org forward class podcast and are also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, and Anchor if you'd like to listen and learn more about this work that we all are doing together. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.